Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. Yes, you heard me right. The New Books in Indian Religions, uh, formerly the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. Same podcast, same host, same excitement, a little more space. Um, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Knut Jakobsen, who is a professor of religion at the University of Bergen in Norway. And this contribution is is apropos of the rebranding of the podcast because he's just completed editing the Rutledge Handbook of South Asian Religions, uh, in which there are a great many of contributions that that span the range of what one might call Indian religions. So, Knut, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Of course, we we spoke to you last year about your your yoga book, Yoga and Modern Hinduism. Um, I'm not sure how you can write a monograph and and also edit this and another volume on Hinduism in Europe, and I'm not sure how you get all this done. <laughs> but they take a lot of time. So the book on yoga and modern Hinduism took me around 20 years. So uh, I work on several projects uh, at the same time. Uh, the book, handbook of Hinduism in Europe, I think five years, and uh, this uh, the Rutledge handbook of South Asian religions, maybe three. So wonderful! So you've you you just take them all simultaneously, and then you pop them all out in succession. <laughs> Got it. Um, so tell us a little bit about the gestation or the genesis of this handbook. Uh, no, um, I think. Um, I was approached and then uh, to think about the the, the, the topic then uh, South Asian religions. And then uh, my first thought about it was either historical or contemporary. And then uh, I decided to make it kind of half-half. And then with the historical South Asia, the South Asian religions, the issue comes up, you know, should you have chapter on all religions or main topics? And I think I choose kind of some major religious historical developments and on the contemporary to have uh, uh, some uh, major issues, but also have separate chapters on the six of the countries in South Asia not India, because it's covered in um, topics from India covered in many chapters, but make sure to have a chapter on religion in the Maldives, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Nepal. And uh, with Nepal and Sri Lanka, I thought there should also be separate chapters in the historical part, because they were, in a way, they cannot be, were not part of, uh, I mean, they have a, a separate uh, religious identity going back uh, far in history. 
A very important point you raise in terms of including the various uh, nations that we consider South Asia, which is the more technical term for those of you listening. When we use the term Indian for Indian religions, uh, we obviously don't mean just the nation state of India, which is relatively new, um, you know, in, in the history of, 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 of South Asian culture or Indian civilization. We mean Indian in sort of a civilizational sense, the way one may use Egypt or Persia and not be referring strictly to the nation state of modern times. Um, so, so the aside from the inclusion of um, content from these various uh, nations, do you want to talk about some of the issues that are addressed in the handbook? Yes. So, the first chapter is about the Vedas, and then, I mean, they are uh, of a, a continuous importance, and I was interesting to get an update on the research of the Veda. What is the state of the research on that field of knowledge today? Because if you are not a specialist on the Veda, you kind of encounter it in, uh, in uh, all kinds of contexts. But I wanted a scholar, scholarly contribution on that, and which uh, Carlos Lopez uh, provided. And uh, it's very <laughs> kind of detailed and update. So it's a very, uh, I mean, I think the, the chapters are somewhat a combination of some kind of to, to take a topic and give an overview of a topic and some take a kind of a, a development to, to, uh, to show how a development came about. So I was interested in also you know, the research on, uh, on the Brahmanical tradition. I mean, there is, it is the case that uh, it's, I mean, also in Carlos Lopez articles that the Vedas came with, uh, uh, with the Indo-European languages. And also it has now be, been uh, confirmed by genetic research. So it's, uh, and then uh, the Brahmins, the Brahmanical tradition was centered in not that big area in North, West uh, India for, for some times. And then, I mean, some hundred years, maybe six, seven hundred years later, it is found all over India. And then it spread even to Southeast Asia. So one big issue is in a way how that Brahmanical tradition came to the, became the dominant tradition. So that is the next chapter then Johannes Bronkhorst of, uh, the, uh, with the- The rise of classical Brahmanism. Yes, and uh, then Nathan McGovern, uh, identity in early Indian religions. So for Johannes Bronkhorst, he, you know, had have this idea about the the the, the two uh, centers of religion, the Ma the greater Magadha, and then uh, the Brahmanical tradition. So he tried to show how this uh, came about. I will not. Uh, I mean, you have to read the the argument. Nathan McGovern have, have a different take on it. Uh, so these are two different positions. So I, I leave it up to the reader, but, but these are a, a continuous debate about uh, early India. Uh, and then uh, there has been very good uh, research the last 10, 20 years on the concept of Dharma, how the concept of Dharma 
really became such a key, I mean, it's the most important concept maybe in, in South Asian religions. So how did it come about? And then uh, it is, wasn't a big concept in the early Vedic traditions. So the, uh, I mean, in this article also, it's argued how, how that happened, how it became the, the dominant concept and certainly the rise of Buddhism is the key event in this and then Brahmanic responses to the to Ashoka and the Mauryan Empire and, and uh, that uh, shock for the Brahmanical tradition then. I don't know if I, I should men, uh, mention all the chapters, but the next one by uh, Staneshwar uh, uh, Timalasinha is about the role of reason in this religious development. And um, he then um, shows, uh, I mean, the, the, the role of reason in religion. The question is, I mean, in, uh, let's see, in Western philosophy, uh, religion and reason kind of parted with the, with the arrival of, with the arising of modern Western philosophy, then kind of religion and reason split. Uh, but um, the question is then, um, how religion and reason work together in India and when this split came about. Uh, and then so Staneshwa argues that faith, in a way, um, brings about that split, but that it's, um, it's a, a kind of a recent development, uh, at least when we speak about traditions going back two, three thousand years. And then uh, the question about uh, uh, the change from, uh, this from is chapter uh, six by Marco Geslani from sacrifice to uh, to puja the, the the issue here I mean that is one of the big transformations now fire is still very much used in puja so it's not a, a total break in any way but uh, the question is when in a way how stat his uh, his the big issue here is how the worship of statues came about. Uh, and uh, I think one theory has been that it was, uh, and I, 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 I'm not uh, judging here, but one theory has been that there was state statues in the kind of a substrat culture, or that it started with kind of a, a kind of a pop, popular, religion, maybe an imitation of Buddhism, which also didn't have statues in the beginning. Nogaslani argues that these statues uh, certainly needed patrons. So, uh, so maybe we should look at kings and uh, on the, in the top of society to look at the origin of these, because uh, that it came from uh, in, from other environment than a kind of a folk uh, substrat culture type of religion. So these are still open issues, but it's these are important issues and uh, people should uh, need to read the, the article and then uh, make up uh, uh, your opinion. Uh, and then the next contribution is your own. Yes, so that is... Uh, on a little bit similar topic, because it is on the question of, uh, of pilgrimage. And then uh, uh, how far back can you trace it? Uh, 
uh, can you trace it back to the kind of a substrate culture? Uh, it's certainly found in, uh, in uh, early Buddhism. And then uh, I try to show that uh, in the Mahabharata, there are actually two different types of religious ritual travel. A religious ritual travel for kind of the, the rich uh, king. Uh, and the, here is the, this, uh, uh, where uh, uh, one of the point of the religious tra travel is redistribution of wealth. Uh, while the other type of pilgrimage that uh, religious travel presented in Mabarata is a kind of a ritual for the poor. So you have actually two types of religious travel, which are, I, I noticed other scholars call both of them pilgrimage, but I think they need to be distinguished because these have, are quite different types of rituals and also maybe different origins. Uh, so and then for the next chapter, we enter Nepal. Yes, uh, so this is uh, Axel Mikkels, and uh, he has just written a big book on the history of religion in Nepal. So here, some of the, uh, some are presented here. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the thing with Nepal is that it has a kind of a Buddhist-Hindu blending. That's the unique thing of it, and it has its own history, although maybe it was considered parts of the kind of the Aryavarta, or they consider themselves at least part of that uh, type of uh, greater Hindu culture then. Uh, then there is uh, a chapter by uh, Patan Bhartshat on the rise of Vaishnava devotion in North India. And that's also one of the big issues. How did bhakti become the dominant form of religion? Uh, or at least Hindu religion uh, in the medieval period. And uh, uh, he, his argument is that, that you have to look at the, also the presence of the Mughal and, or the, 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 the Muslim presence in India. That, uh, so that's a, a very, I mean, a long argument. And uh, also a, a very recommended, uh, an article I recommend very highly because this is one of the major issues actually uh, uh, about uh, change in, uh, in uh, religions in South Asia. And then uh, there is an article by Adrian Munoz on the Nath Sampradai. It has uh, an additional interest now because the Gorakhpur uh, Mat is, uh, has become a kind of a BJP uh, center of political power. Uh, but uh, um, it has an interest also because when we ask about the history of yoga in India, actually this group, this group is the only one who has called themselves yogis all the time. So therefore this group uh, is of unique interest to understand the history of yoga and they are connected then to Hatha yoga practices. Uh, now, uh, Munos uh, are interested in, in the, the kind of the formation of this uh, Sampradaya then. So also very important. And then uh, uh, also uh, Tilman Kulka uh, writes about the kind of the evaluation of Aurangzeb. Now he is the, certainly one of the most controversial figures in South Asian history, but um, <clears throat> 
this is really a great article, which I highly recommend. And that's the, um, he asked, um, um, try to broaden up to understand the different, his different motivations and the different judgments about him uh, in the, in the uh, afterwards. Uh, so, um, to whom should he be compared? So he think that if we compare him, for instance, to the to the greatest, what we call the greatest uh, uh, rulers in uh, medieval Europe or in European history, that would be, give a be better context for understanding. I mean, he clearly wanted to be remembered as the greatest emperor of India ever, and miserably failed, of course. But uh, uh, maybe, uh, uh, yes, so this... Uh, have to do with um, the way maybe he has been misconstrued. Uh, uh, and uh, Anne Murphy then on territorialization of uh, uh, the Sikh uh, pasts. And uh, this also concerned one of the big argument for, for understanding the Sikh tradition in India. Um, and uh, that is how. Uh, how it relates to Punjab. And uh, because there is something, I mean, uh, Guru Gobind Singh, his two centers, one is in Patna in Bihar, one is in uh, Nander in South Maharashtra. So certainly the geography of the Sikhs were not limited to, to Punjab uh, in that period. So something happened. So this article about that, uh, that's something then. So this is the that was the thirteenth chapter. the The volume has twenty six chapters, so it is exactly half and half. The first thirteen are part of the first section. Uh, for those listening on the historical South Asian religions, these developments is as you can see, it's quite textured. Where there's talk of Brahmanism, there's talk about Dharma and Hinduism, there's talk about Yagnya Puja uh, pilgrimage. Um, and, and and of course, there's there's discussion of Islam in India of 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 Sikhism. Um, and I did we make mention of Justin Henry's article on Sri Lanka that Buddhism? I, I forgot. So oh, not a problem. Remembering that, so that's also a very important article because uh, Sri Lanka is the kind of the what kind of the key area for the uh, Theravada textual tradition. So it's. Uh, it's a kind of the most important uh, area for a continuous presence also of the Theravada tradition. So uh, his article is about uh, uh, is about that. So uh, and its role of because it's this there its role in, for Buddhism in South Asia. We often think that you know. Uh, that uh, Buddhism disappeared from, from India or most part of India, but actually it, it didn't disappear from Sri Lanka. So it has a very, it's very important uh, for understanding South Asian uh, Buddhist history, actually. Great. I mean, it's unplanned, but the timing of this interview is, is great for the brand of the podcast because it really shows the texture of, of religions and, and nations that we can consider um, that obviously are rightfully in this, in this um, handbook of South Asian religions. Um, as we turn to the second part, part two, contemporary South Asian religions, uh, 
religious pluralism. They also have 13 contributions. Do you want to say a word about um, an overview or some, some themes in this in this section? Yes. So with the issue of India, I didn't think it would be possible to have a kind of a one article on India. It wouldn't make that much sense. So instead, uh, we uh, some topics uh, we uh, I mean, there was I selected some topics that I thought would be uh, important. And then I had some chapters on each of the six other countries and then some um, uh, overview issues at the end, uh, who, which uh, that is on festivals, which goes cover several countries on Indians in the United States, which covers several religions and on the global guru phenomenon. But it starts then with some uh, issues about religion in India. And the first one is about Dalits and religion. I think that's a, an understudied uh, topic and a very important one. And uh, one that uh, uh, I think needs more study. Uh, of course, it is uh, it is um, Ambedkar and Navayana Buddhist make, is an important part of it, but there are also many other issues and also throughout history. Uh, now, the second one here is about uh, is by Mukesh Kumar, and it is also about an important issue in contemporary India. The, the, we used to talk about a kind of composite Hindu-Muslim culture, especially in, in uh, North India. But of course, with the, with the kind of political uh, focus on Hindu and uh, uh, Hindu identity or religious identities, this uh, part of culture uh, is uh, not as strong maybe as it used to be. But uh, Mukesh Kumar writes about uh, a group then worshippers of Lal uh, Das, who is considered both a kind of a Muslim and Hindu. So here you have a, I, I'm not sure if you should, if you should call it cosmopolitan, but at least it's a, it's a religious tradition that blends Hindu and Muslim uh, 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 tr traditions without in a way problematizing it as either Muslim or Hindu. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's syncretic. Syncretic, you could say. Syncretic, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and the next contribution um, is by Chad Bauman, who was uh, on, I think, the last two podcasts, talking about his own book and then talking about a handbook with Michelle. His yes. chapter is Conversion and Christian Relations with Non-Christians in South Asia. Yeah, so that's what he he writes about here also. That's his, his special field. And uh, also why, uh, why it's, it has become controversial and also about violence. So uh, it's the, the kind of in a difficult situation for Christians in India with the growth of Hindutva and, and focus on religious identities. So Speaking I'm, of Hindutva, the following chapter, it's by Mira Nanda, and it's, it's uh, called Science Sanskritized, How Modern Science Became a Handmaiden of Hindu Nationalism. What does Mira say? So, so um, 
that is uh, that in a way she, she argues that historically the brahmanical tradition has taken over other systems that they have encountered and made them their own i mean it would be the, the example with the concept of dharma that uh, is covered in an earlier chapter it was uh, in a way popularized as a buddhist concept but then was then taken over by the brahmanical tradition and included and become a uh, I mean, a key, sig uh, very significant part of the Brahmanical tradition. So she tries to look at that uh, dynamic to explain how, um, in a way, uh, Hindu Tva tries to adopt science in a kind of ways that seems uh, strange, to put it mildly, uh, but uh, they, in a way, uh, I think it's well known what's happened. Is, I think it starts with Dayananda Saraswati uh, and the Arya Samaj uh, claiming um, all, uh, in a way, uh, what will the progress of, of science the last two, three hundred years, which have been, I mean, quite enormous. Uh, no human being could fly. I mean, was it around hundred years ago? And within fifty years or so, they could fly to the moon so it's it's i mean science had had just an enormous progress but these hindu nationalists claim that all that in a way was uh, that the ancient indian civilization was superior in their science and knowledge than uh, than the current one so and that uh, she claims has been i mean has been the one way that uh, that uh, Hindu religion has dealt with the challenge from science than that not confronting it in a way that you could say Christians did, but include it and then claiming it. Uh, it's fascinating, is, uh, yes. And for the next chapter, we move to Pakistan. Yes, so Michel uh, Boiva. Uh, and uh, in this, uh, next six chapters uh, what appears is a kind of a very a, a role of religion for nation states and nationalism um, for instance um, Boivar claims that uh, because there were military coups in, in Pakistan's coup, uh, then uh, that meant that the state could not be legitimized by democracy, claiming that it had was democratic, uh, democratically elected. So they they choose Islam as a way of legitimating the state, uh, and uh, because you get the kind of Islamist state in 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 uh, Pakistan. So uh, uh, the chapter is about more than that. It is about the whole uh, the whole situation, also uh, the kind of the everyday uh, Islam. Uh, but uh, the situation, uh, uh, I mean, uh, I think people ask, how did, how did Pakistan end up like, I mean, it was originally a state meant to protect Muslims, the interests of Muslims, but it ended up then that as an Islamist state, which certainly does, doesn't seem to have been the intention at the at the origin. Uh, right. And then the following one, we go from um, Pakistan to um, Bangladesh. Yeah, Ali Riyas. 
So, uh, so he also kind of describes an, a, a development not that uh, different, uh, but with uh, with political uh, power connecting themselves to uh, different types of Islam. Then, uh, and then we move to Sri Lanka for the next chapter. Yes, so that is by Peter Schalk, and uh, here again uh, we have um, a state that has connected itself to Buddhism as the so-called favored religion, uh, but uh, uh, and uh, uh, which developed into a kind of a Buddhist fundamentalist type of uh, of, of state uh, with. Uh, mm, uh, leading to a uh, to a civil war uh, with uh, with the Tamils, and now um, uh, a state still pushing uh, Buddhism also in the Tamil areas, for instance, by big, building stupas, new temples, and so it's clearly a. Um, I think Buddhism is called a preferred religion by the state, but certainly, uh, and. Uh, uh, we could um, think of this also as a way of legitimating political power. Uh, maybe if we think about BJP in India, if you manage to uh, um, to make people feel that their religious identity should uh, mean that they vote for a particular party favoring that religious identity, then you have a majority. So you can, so even if people have different interests, you can in a way uh, manage to, uh, to, to, to create a majoritarian uh, regime based on this identity in spite of all the other interests, let's see, costs. And so it seemed to be a somewhat similar situation maybe in Sri Lanka and, and, uh, and India currently. Uh, and... Uh, um, the following chapter, and we go to Nepal for chapter 21. Yes, so that's the exception. I mean, uh, Nepal was the only Hindu kingdom in the world, and then it chose to become, have a secular, uh, secular state. So uh, now it's uh, struggling with, uh, with uh, how the state then relates to religion. So does the should the state participate in religious rituals, popular religion, etc.? How does it, uh, so how does it uh, deal with that? It's also a very interesting current development, and it's a very good chapter. Then we have our chapter on Bhutan, chapter twenty-two. Yeah, so Bolsin and Emmanuel Lopez, uh, they write about uh, education of nuns, and. Uh, there has been an enormous expansion of schools for nuns uh, the last 20, 30 years. And they try to deal with why is that? And uh, in traditional Buddhism there, nuns were really uh, had a low status. Uh, so these nuns then, these educational institutions connected themselves to international Buddhism and were able then to build a kind of a new religious identity for, for these nuns and nun education. Uh, 
So it's uh, uh, also here, this uh, Bhutan is also defined as a Buddhist state. So it has also, uh, it's uh, kind of a national identity connected to one uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. Uh, and we we venture into the Maldives. Yes, that's also, I think most people don't know much about the Maldives uh, because it's, but um, it was actually a thousand years ago, it was Buddhist. So there is, but then in the 12th century, Islam entered and now it's 100% Muslim and only Muslims are allowed to become citizens of the Maldives. And then uh, uh, Nassim write about how, how the Saudi Arabian type of Salafi Islam kind of took over uh, the Maldives and created a form of Saudi Arabian, very intolerant form of Islam. Uh, so, uh, so the, he, she she writes about that process. So, uh, uh, I think she is herself a refugee, actually living in Spain, from this uh, Islamization process. Uh, and then uh, <coughs> we go to something lighter. That is uh, the festivals. So Uta Husken uh, write about uh, uh, these festivals, and it's. It's more in line maybe with the Veda article that it is give not a total overview, but it, it gives very many examples, examples from different uh, festivals. And uh, she makes one significant conclusion is that um, all these festivals are expressions of local, uh, the local situation, local religion, local uh, uh, culture. And she uses the example of food that the food is different from place to place, uh, which shows that they have this, uh, they are expression of local religion and not kind of Hindu festivals, but they are local, uh, local festivals. And then uh, Prema Kurian writes about the Indian religions in the uh, United States. So not all the, not all the essays are from South Asia. I think this is the only one, uh, or, or, or the next one also uh, is deals with uh, religion, South Asian religion outside of South Asia. Uh, so this is the, the situation of religion uh, in in the, in the United States, the kind of the pluralistic uh, situation where you have uh, yes, Ambedkar Buddhists organizing themselves in. In, uh, in the United States, but also Hindu to our politics. And so, uh, and then, uh, yes, also South Asian Christians in the United States. Uh, yes. Uh, the final contribution is by Amanda Chia. Yes, on the global um, manifestation of the Hindu Guru phenomena. And, and also <laughs> very entertaining essay also because these Hindu Gurus are, have, many of them have great entertaining value. So I, so I think one thing here is that uh, they kind of moved out of India and uh, during the 60s counterculture in Europe, they had, a, I mean, they were received very well. They, in a way, presented ideas that, uh, that uh, in a way, uh, harmonized with many Westerners who were in opposition to their own culture, uh, while 
maybe the last 10, 20 years, they have focused more on India with the growth of the Indian middle class. So they have, uh, but uh, so they kind of uh, uh, moved back, uh, moved back into India. At least uh, uh, there has been a very a gr growth of that uh, phenomenon also in India. Many of those who had great success in the 60s, 70s are also now dead. So that's a different story how their, their organizations have. So that's in a way uh, ended up with a kind of a global, uh, the globe, a global impact on, uh, on the South Asian uh, gu gu religious gurus. Sure, you pan out at the end and she has a, a fascinating uh, new book um, called White Utopias yeah. on transformational festivals. We had her on the podcast last month, I believe. Yeah. Uh, really interesting stuff. So obviously, you know, as to be expected for a handbook, um, there's um, there's a, a vast amount of, of of information, right? This this spans the range of of what we would think of as uh, uh, Indian religion, South Asian religions. Yeah. And so, who would you say? Who would you say would most benefit from this handbook? Who's it for? I think, um, I mean, uh, for a new student, let's see a new student to Hinduism or, or religions in South Asia. Here, he would get some overviews and introductions to many of the, the topics and issues, and also kind of the, what they called, uh, the current state of research. Uh, so, uh, and it covers also a lot of, uh, uh, material, both historically and uh, contemporary. So it could uh, work as a, a kind of a, an up, updated, uh, the, the latest update of research within many uh, fields in South Asian religions. Uh, but um, the specialist will also find uh, uh, that same because specialists are specialists only in one or two fields or three or four. So here it's a kind of an easy way to get update. I mean, what are the latest research on Dharma? I mean, what do those who have worked on Dharma research on the concept of Dharma or Dharma Shastras, what are the, the state uh, of knowledge? Because I think they that research which was done some decades now that they actually reached some very interesting conclusions. So, and some of them are ongoing uh, debates. I think the, the, the issue of bhakti is an on, ongoing debate. Uh, the, the, the issue of why the Brahmins won, is all, the, these are also ongoing debates, but they are in very central debates in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the discipline. It really is fascinating. Um, and uh, for me, I imagine for others as well, it's quite a useful teaching resource. So, for example, um, currently um, I designed um, an intro Hinduism course called the Hindu Tapestry and loosely divided into, you know, the typical historical periods, you know, New Vedic religion, the Upanishads, etc., etc. So it would be great, for example, to assign Carlos Lopez's The Veda chapter to give them a sense of what's happening 
the current state of scholarship. So it strikes me as a really useful teaching resource for anybody teaching broadly um, South Asian religion. So um, is there anything else you wanted to say about the handbook? Uh, but let me just add that, that many of the chapters can be used in that way. Let's see Ute Hiskens on South Asian festival culture. Uh, and uh, so also the chapters on the different countries are very kind of a kind of an easy way. You can, because it's like 20 pages and you can get a really update on uh, kind of religion in Pakistan. I mean, if you don't know much about it, here is an, an good way to get kind of an acad what academic, the academic community may make out of it. So, uh, no, but uh, I should say also that these are all very good authors and it's a privilege for me to work with people who, who uh, I mean, uh, such uh, acclaimed scholars that the people included in the book. Yeah, there's no question that you have, um, you have quite an array of scholars here. A number of them have been on the podcast, a number of them I hope to have on the podcast at some point. Um, and as you say, it really is a great way to sort of take the temperature, if you will, to take the temperature of tradition. Um, if it, you know, so, so I'm a specialist, but obviously so much of this is well beyond my area of specialization. It's quite useful to to have a look at a chapter, and um, especially in the event that students expect one to be a specialist in every aspect of a religion. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> you need to burst their bubbles every now and then and say, "I know nothing about that, but I'll find you a great article." Uh, here you are. Um, no, it's been really great having you on the podcast again to talk about the handbook. Um, Oh, it was my pleasure. My pleasure. So, uh, dare I ask? I mean, you've, you've, you, you probably need a break. But what are you working on now? <laughs> so, I'm, I'm working on, uh, uh, actually, on on the Hindu diaspora. Is one uh, book I'm working on, and uh, that is, um, I'm trying to, to uh, understand uh, the way actually Hinduism or the religious traditions that we in a way call Hindus, how they spread geographically in space then. And uh, I'm taking the kind of the Hindu, or the, the kind of the spread of Hinduism the last 200 years as uh, to see as a model of that. That is um, as a religion then I'm interested in the, the religious traditions. So I'm working on on that, uh, I'm I'm editing a volume also on 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 Hindu diasporas. So these are the two things that uh, that occupy me. I'm uh, yes. So it's uh, contemporary. I'm, I'm always working on Sankhya and yoga, but uh, uh, this uh, the, the 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 book on uh, on Hinduism and migration is the one I try to complete have to complete uh, the, the first fascinating we'll have to have you back on when that one's popped out um and after this podcast you'll have to give me tips on your time management <laughs> that's a story <laughs> we'll, we'll save that for, for for after we sign off uh, for those of you listening um uh we've been speaking with dr knut jacobsen 
of the University of Bergen in Norway, uh, who is the editor of a fantastic uh, brand new Rutledge Handbook of South Asian Religions. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with me today. And for those of you out there, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and um, keep contemplating South Asian religions. Take care.